Greetings from Latter-day Media, presenting our dear friend and epic historian on Joseph Smith and church history, Brother Kay Godfrey. The Silver-Lined Clouds of War, Part 2. Welcome back. Today's podcast, Part 2 of the Silver-Lined Clouds of War, we're going to be discussing the year 1838. The entire podcast is going to be uh, centered around the, the things that took place during that period of time. And as we mentioned at the conclusion of the podcast prior to this, uh, we hoped that uh, there was, in fact, a silver-lined cloud to be found. But unfortunately, as you'll see as we go through our presentation today, the worst was yet to come. Upon the prophet's return from Diamond, he was greeted with the news that two of his apostles, Thomas Marsh and Orson Hyde, had left the church. This was due in part to, but not exclusively, to the teachings of Samson Avard. On October 24, these two men swore out an affidavit in Richmond against the prophet, saying, quote, He had plotted to take over the state of Missouri and eventually the United States. In Jefferson City, the capital of Missouri, the governor had decided to secure the southern line of Caldwell County. This was done supposedly as a means of protecting the saints, but primarily it was to prevent an invasion of Richmond by the Mormons, which had been rumored. Samuel Bogart, a Methodist minister from Jackson County and a Mormon hater, was put in charge of securing this line. On Wednesday, October 24th, Bogart was seen crossing over into Caldwell County and taking Nathan Pinkham, Willie Seeley, William Seeley, and Addison Green prisoners. Upon hearing this news, Joseph called upon Far West's newly elected judge, Elias Higby, for action. Brother Higby authorized Colonel Hinkle to send out a company to rescue the brethren. The drums beat at midnight, calling forth volunteers. Seventy-five men were mobilized, one group led by Apostle David W. Patton and one group led by Charles C. Rich. Bogart's men were held up in a ford on the Crooked River, about 18 miles south of Far West. As the company approached the river, they mounted the top of a hill, only to be silhouetted by the, near, by the early dawn light. With Bogart's men hidden below the river bank, the brethren were easy targets for the mob. Patrick O'Bannon was the first hit, falling mortally to the ground. James uh, Hedricks and Brother Hodges were both also hit. Gideon Carter was shot through the head and left dead on the ground, so defaced that the brethren did not even recognize him. If you look at this slide, I'd like to just go over it with you for a moment. You see the blue arrows, the purple arrows, as they come down the road from far west, going south towards Richmond. And you can see that the attack would be down the hill following the purple arrows with uh, Patton's column, Rich's column, and Durfee's column. And then secure below near the river bank, you see Bogart's camp and his men. And the Crooked River you can see in the separation line there of Caldwell County uh, uh, to the north. So this is kind of the uh, kind of the look of what's about to take place with this particular battle on October 25th, 1838. Captain Patton ordered a charge. As the company rushed down the slope, the mod fled in terror. And again, as you look at this particular slide, the mob is down below where the trees are, and the men are silhouetted along the top of the crest of that hill. 
The mob was chased across the river where one heathen turned and took a shot at Captain Patton. Patton was wearing a long white blanket coat at the time that made him a pretty conspicuous target. He was hit and went down. At that moment, Charles C. Rich, who likewise was in pursuit, immediately laid down his sword and administered the ordinance of laying on of hands to our, uh, to our dying apostle. The three prisoners were rescued that day, but a great price was paid. Ten of the brethren were wounded, two killed, and Apostle Patton near death. Bogart reported that he lost one man. The prophet was informed of Brother Patton's condition. Joseph Hiram, Heber C. Kimball, Sister Patton, and Lyman White met the party halfway at the home of Brother Stephen Winchester. There they found David near death. Speaking to his beloved wife that evening, Phoebe, he said to her, quote, Whatever you do else, oh, do not deny the faith. David W. Patton became the first apostle of this generation to be martyred for the cause of truth. Apostle Patton was buried in the Far West Cemetery, about two miles from the town center. At his funeral on Saturday the 27th, the prophet said, and I quote, There lies a man that has done just as he said he would. He has laid down his life for his friends. His graveside is unknown. As the saints were driven from Missouri, the incoming Gentiles took any stones they could find from the cemetery to use in various buildings and walkways. The cemetery was plowed over every year and planted until the church bought the property in 2012 from the community of Christ Church. With the defeat of the mob uh, there at the Battle of Crooked River, the rumor spread like prairie fire. It was reported that the Mormons had slaughtered 50 of Bogart's men and were pushing forward to attack Richmond, and that, quote, on a moment's notice, Joe Smith could call forth 14,000 Indians for assistance. Well, with these fallacious rumors reaching Jefferson City, the inflammatory affidavits of Marsh and Hyde as ammunition, Governor Boggs then issued his infamous Executive Order 44, or the Mormon Extermination Order. On October 27, 1838, it read, The Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state if necessary for the good of the public. Their outrages are beyond all descriptions. Well, with this declaration of open hunting season on the Mormons, the mob and state militia easily joined forces. Governor Boggs did not like the soft approach of Major General Atchison and Brigadier General Donovan towards the Saints in Far West. They were released of their commands. Atchison withdrew from the Army at this time and returned home. Generals John B. Clark and Samuel D. Lucas were put in their stead, and each sent to the battle scene in command of 2,500 troops. Lucas's forces were the first to arrive. As troops assembled outside of Far West, the call went out to the neighboring Mormon communities to quickly assemble to Far West. Most did. However, some did not. One of those that did not heed the call was Jacob Hahn of Hahn's Mill. Jacob Hahn had come to Shoal Creek as a Latter-day Saint convert from Wisconsin in 1835. He was a miller by trade and built a water wheel on the creek. He established a small community consisting of a mill, a partially built blacksmith shop, a few houses, and a number of wagon homes. Twenty to thirty families lived at the settlement. 
The leaders of the community felt that they were not in danger because they have signed a peace treaty on October 28th with the local militia led by Captain Nehemiah Comstock. However, other militia in the area led by Mr. Bryan, Mr. Mann, were not interested in peace. In fact, Colonel William Jennings, the sheriff of the county, was head of the entire Gentile force. On October 30th, after he learned that Hans Mill had not disbanded and gone to far west, Colonel Jennings collected a force of 250 men and from three different companies, and they marched on the mill. Early that morning, nine wagons of immigrants arrived at the mill from Kirtland en route to far west. In this company was John Young, brother of Brigham Young. At four o'clock in the afternoon, on October 30th, 1838, this bloody tragedy was acted out, a scene literally too terrible to report. Suddenly, from out of the north, the mob attacked, taking the little hamlet by total surprise. Women and children fled in terror, crossing the creek, fleeing up the hill and into the woods. The men scattered, with a large number of them seeking some sort of protection in the partially built blacksmith shop. Within seconds, 100 rifles were discharged. Many men were dropped in their tracks. The cracks between the logs of the blacksmith shop allowed the mob to simply take aim and kill from point-blank range. Nearly every bullet that entered the blacksmith shop killed or wounded a man. Among those killed was 10-year-old Sardius Smith, who, after witnessing the murder of his father, crawled underneath the bellows. He was soon discovered by Mr. Glaze of Carroll County. He presented his rifle to the boy's head and literally blew it off. His comment was, quote, Nits will make lice, and if he had lived, he would have become a Mormon. Sardius's younger brother, seven-year-old Alma, was also shot through the hip. He was miraculously healed through the faith and prayers of his mother, Amanda Smith. Elderly Thomas McBride was killed with his own gun after he had given it up. Thomas McBride was a war hero. In all, 15 men and two small boys died that night or shortly after. 13 others were injured. That evening, the bodies of 15 were interred in a partially dug well by the few remaining male survivors. John Young was one of those who performed this grisly task. The prophet would later state, and I quote, At Hans Mill, the brethren went contrary to my counsel. If they had not, their lives would have been spared. A tragic lesson was learned that day. Now, just a little thought, a little history about the mill site. Jacob Hans sold his land to John Fryer in 1838. Charles Ross, a brother-in-law of John Fryer, ran the mill until 1841. In 1845, Ross dismantled the mill and discovered the well where the bodies were interred. He filled in the depression. In 1887, Josiah Fuller, the son of Josiah Fuller, who was killed at the mill, visited the site with Ross and put a millstone from the mill over the well site. In 1941, Glenn M. Stetzer removed the millstone and set it in cement near the road as a tribute to those that were slain. The event was marked with a ceremony and a plaque. However, with him removing the millstone, the site of the well is now unknown. A second millstone lay in the waters of Shoal Creek until 1914. It was discovered by the citizens of nearby Breckenridge. 
They had it removed and placed in their city park as another tribute. The Hans Mill property was owned by the Community of Christ Church, formerly the RLDS Faith, until the church purchased the property in 2012. And I quote, At Hans Mill, nature has conspired to hide from us the past we would recreate. We hardly dare guess at the location of the well which became a mass grave. It is this, as if nature thought to blot out the obscenity of this massacre. May they rest in peace. Now, in closing this chapter, some justice, I suppose, was served. Sheriff William O. Jennings, who led the attack on the mill, was gunned down by an assassin's bullet on January 30, 1862, while returning to his home. You can sense that I there's quite a bit of research that I have done on Hans Mill, and I cannot uh, conclude this particular chapter or portion of 1838 without a discussion about Amanda Barnes Smith and her son Alma. So let me let me talk to you a little bit about that. Um, Amanda Barnes Smith, their family had come from the Kirtland camp, and and during this tragedy that took place, of course, Amanda lost her husband and one other son, one son in the blacksmith shop attack. Her 11-year-old son, Willard Gilbert Smith, had tried to enter the blacksmith shop three times during the attack, but he was prevented by his own arms, flinging up and blocking his entrance into the building. He then went and hid in a pile of lumber, and from there he ran to a house where he discovered Thomas McBride, badly wounded, and he ran to fetch him some water. The bob shooting at him every time he ran. He then helped six little girls who were hiding in another house escape into the woods. He was the first to enter the blacksmith shop after the mob had left. Finding Alma, this is, this is his brother, with his hip blown away but still alive, he picked him up and carried him to his mother. Amanda's plea for help from God in knowing what to do for her wounded son where her prayers were answered in a very, very specific fashion. She cleansed the wound with a lye made from shagbark hickory ashes. And when that process was completed, she was directed to apply a poultice of slippery elm root. Slippery elm root. I'll say that again. Can I start that slide again, Mike? I'm sorry. Finding Alma with his hip blown away, but still alive, um, he was carried uh, to his mother, Amanda. And she pleaded for help from the Lord in knowing what to do. Her prayer was answered in a very specific fashion. She cleaned the wound with a lye made from shagbark hickory ashes. And when that process was completed, she was directed to apply a poultice of slippery elm root. She had complete faith that God, who had made her son's hip, could make him a new one. Well, she was directed to have Alma lay on his face for five weeks, at which time he got up from on his own, jumped up, and danced to the delight of his younger siblings. When she moved to Illinois, the fame of Alma and his recovered hip drew a group of five physicians sent by a board of doctors from St. Louis to examine him. They could not understand scientifically how this hip could have been healed as it did and allow him full activity. They asked Amanda uh, the name of the surgeon who had performed such a wonderful piece of surgery. And her response, and I quote, Jesus Christ. They said, not the Savior of the world. 
And her response, yes, yes, sir, he was the physician and I was the nurse. Back in Far West, the news of Hans Mill Massacre struck terror into the hearts of the saints, and they immediately barricaded the city. By October 31st, the mob outnumbered the saints five to one, and pretty well had the city surrounded. That Halloween evening, Colonel Hinkle put on his mask. Under the guise of attempting to arrange a compromise with General Lucas, he went out into the enemy camp. There he sold out the prophet, agreeing to four conditions of surrender. First, he'd turn over the prominent leaders. Second, they would give up all property of those who had taken up arms against them in order to pay for the debt of the... Uh, this is... Yeah. In far west, the news of Hans Mill massacre struck terror into the hearts of the saints. They immediately barricaded the city, and by October 31st, the mob outnumbered the saints five to one and had surrounded the city. That Halloween evening, Colonel Hinkle put on his mask. Under the guise of an attempt to arrange a compromise with General Lucas, he went out into the enemy camp, and there he sold out the prophet, agreeing to four conditions of surrender. First, he'd turn over the prominent leaders. Second, they would give up all property of those who had taken up arms against them in order to pay the debt of the war. Third, they'd give up all arms. And last, they would leave by spring from the state of Missouri. Hinkle returned to the brethren and convinced Joseph, Sidney Rigdon, Lyman White, Parley P. Pratt, and George W. Robinson that General Lucas wanted to talk to them about a peace treaty. With this simple stroke of hand, they were delivered into the clutches of their enemies. The triumphant shrieking of the mob could be heard all over the county. Joseph Smith Sr., hearing the captors howling like wolves, became mentally disturbed, thinking his son had been killed. He never really completely recovered from this, dying in Nauvoo two years later. Joseph and the others were forced that night to lie on the frozen ground in the rain while the mob blasphemed God and taunted the brethren, much as the Savior was mocked prior to his trial. I've got this picture here that I can just kind of show you. Um, uh, yeah, there we go. I uh, really like this picture. It's quite detailed, and I'm sure Michael take a picture of this and put it as part of this podcast, but it depicts this particular incident of the brethren lying on the frozen ground in the rain, being uh, persecuted and abused uh, verbally by the mob. Well, during the evening, the brethren learned that they were be sentenced to sh be shot the following morning at 9 a.m. Say that sentence again. I will. I stumbled through Very that. Well, during the evening, the brethren learned that they had been sentenced to be shot the following morning at 9 a.m. Kneeling in prayer, the prisoners asked the Lord to spare their lives. As the night passed, Lyman White was approached by General Moses Wilson of the militia in an effort to induce him to betray the prophet. In return, of course, they're going to spare his life. This is Lyman's response to this request. Quote, General Wilson, you are mistaken entirely in regards to Joseph. He's not your enemy, but he's as good a friend as you have ever had. Had it not been for him, you would have been in hell long ago, for I would have sent you there myself, and no other man other than Joseph Smith could have prevented me from doing it. You owe him your life. 
General Donovan received word that he was to have the prisoners executed the following morning. This execution site, as you can see from this this slide, is not far from Far West. Far West is in the background. It's where the trees are. That's the temple site. That's where the barricade was. And perhaps a half a mile or so outside of that barricade is where the mob was near a place called Goose Creek. Donovan's response to General Lucas's order to execute the prophet was an emphatic, No, it is cold-blooded murder. I will not obey your order. My brigade shall march for liberty tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, and if you execute those men, I will hold you responsible before an earthly tribunal, so help me God. And with that declaration, General Donovan returned home. General Lucas thought better of the idea and decided to take the prisoners and parade them to uh, independence. He wanted to showcase what he had accomplished. On November 1st, 1838, the Mormon War came to an end. Far West surrendered under the conditions set forth by Hinkle and Lucas. 650 guns were turned over to the militia. The town was then plundered. The flocks and herds were scattered, property destroyed, and the inhabitants were beaten and abused. At Diamond, 300 families were driven from their homes, and they were given 10 days to leave and assemble at Far West. General Lucas ordered General Moses Wilson to take the prisoners to independence. General Clark had not yet arrived on the scene with his 2,500 men. Had he arrived prior to the prisoners leaving, he would never have taken them to independence. He would have paraded them to the much more hostile city of Richmond. Wilson allowed the brethren to say their last goodbyes. For Joseph, this was a heart-wrenching experience. Quote, When I entered my house, they clung to my garments, their eyes streaming with tears, while mingled emotions of joy and sorrow were manifest in their countenance. I was then obliged to take my departure. My partner wept, my children clung to me, until they were thrust from me by the swords of the guards. As the prisoners were loaded into the wagon, Lucy Mac Smith ran forward and touched the outstretched hand of her son from behind the canvas cover. On November 4th, General Clark finally arrived at Far West. He gathered the saints together and told them that they must scatter and leave the state by spring or suffer the wrath of the citizenry of Missouri. He endorsed all General Lucas had done, although he had wanted a fight. He counseled the saints... And listen to this quote, Never again be so foolishly different, but be as normal Missourian citizens. The prisoners were taken to independence by General Moses Wilson. They were held under house arrest at the Nolan House. That's in the square very close to the courthouse. Today it's a cinema. They were given some freedom to walk around town. It seems that attitudes in Independence, which is Jackson County, had changed quite a bit since 1833. Having Joseph Smith in town was quite a novelty. Moses Wilson and his wife Margaret actually invited Joseph to dine with them at their home, the Flornari home. Now I'll stop there for just a moment because you've seen this slide before and this home. This is the very home that Edward Partridge purchased the temple lot from Jones H. Flournoy. This was the Flournoy home, now owned by Moses and Margaret Wilson. 
Wilson had been a principal force in driving the Saints initially from Jackson in the mid-1830s, and during the war, quote, the Mormon War, he had lost a son. The Wilsons wanted to hear Joseph's side of the story. Well, Joseph told such a stirring story that evening that Margaret was moved to tears, and the church had lost an enemy and gained a friend. Well, the newfound freedoms of the saints did not sit very well with the return of General Clark. After all, he had missed the opportunity to parade the prisoners and bask in his glory, and after all, he was in charge of the entire Missouri militia. He immediately sent Colonel Sterling Price to Independence with instructions to round up those prisoners and bring them to Richmond. Now, a little bit about this slide on Sterling Price. Sterling Price is going to serve as governor of the state of Missouri from 53 to 57. He's going to follow a bitter anti-Mormon hater, Judge Austin King, who would, who would have served as governor also. Sterling actually spoke quite favorably of the saints and felt they were not guilty of the offenses they were being charged with. Now the prisoners were chained together two by two and marched to Richmond. Joseph said, and I quote, we were bound together in everlasting cords of love. They were jailed in Richmond because there were no jails in Davies or Caldwell counties. Meanwhile, General Clark did all he could to find some way to try the prisoners in a military court so they would be shot. He eventually, however, relented in this effort and yielded to the authority of Judge Austin King, a self-proclaimed Mormon hater. The prisoners were guarded by Colonel Price and his men while they were there in Richmond. One tedious night, the prisoners lay awake there in Richmond, listening to the obscene jest, the horrid oaths, and the filthy language of the guards. Parley P. Pratt wrote, and I quote, On a sudden, Joseph arose to his feet and spoke in the voice of thunder as a roaring lion. He said, Silence, ye fiends of the eternal pit. In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you and command you to be still. I will not live another minute and hear such language. Cease such talk, or you or I will die this instant. Well, he stood in terrible majesty, looking upon the quailing guards who were shrinking into a corner. They begged his pardon and remained silent. I have seen U.S. Congress in session, and the ministers of justice clothed in magisterial robes in the courts of England. But dignity and majesty I have seen but once as it stood in chains at midnight in a dungeon in an obscure village in Missouri. Joseph, Hiram, Sidney, Alexander McRae, and Caleb Baldwin were charged with treason. Parley P. Pratt, Norman Shearer, Darwin Chase, Lyman Gibbs, and Morris Phelps were charged with the murder of Moses Rowland at the Battle of Crooked River. Later, King Follett's going to join this particular group and be charged with robbery. The hearing at Richmond began on November 12th and lasted 16 days. The attorneys that represented the brethren included David R. Atchison and Alexander Donovan. They were paid $5,000 for their services. Joseph once said, quote, Attorneys in Missouri were paid more than $50,000 of church funds. Mr. Wood and Mr. Birch served as the prosecuting attorneys. The trial commenced with its star witness, Samson Avard. His testimony comprised one-fifth of the court record. 
Other testimony from Phelps, Whitmer, Marsh, Corral, and Hinkle added fuel for the prosecution. The prosecution called 41 witnesses, 21 were Mormon apostates, and 20 were Missourians. When the defense had its opportunity to call its witnesses, they were either arrested or driven from the county. Eventually, seven brave individuals were found and sworn in. They refuted all of the claims of the prosecution. Alexander Donovan said, quote, If a cohort of angels were to come down and declare the Mormons innocent, it would make no difference to Judge King. He was determined from the beginning to have them in prison. Well, the mockery of justice, this trial, as Donovan stood to give his closing arguments, Peter Burnett, a member of the defense team, leaned over and said, and I quote, Donovan, let yourself out, my good fellow, and I will kill the first man that attacks you. Well, he did let himself out in one of the most eloquent and withering speeches I've ever heard. The maddening crowd foamed and gnashed their teeth, but only to make him more and more intrepid. He faced that terrible storm with noble courage. All the time I sat within six feet of him with my hand on my pistol, calmly determined to do what I had promised him I would do. Interesting to note on this slide that this individual, Peter uh, Hardman Bur Burnett, became the first governor of, uh, of California in 1849 through 1851. Well, the court was not a, the only source of abuse that was taking place at this time. While in jail, the apostate William McClellan plundered and robbed the homes of Joseph, Sidney, George Morey, and Widow Patton. William also wanted the opportunity to flog the prophet, but he backed down on that when he found out that Joseph wouldn't be tied up when he wanted to do it. Well, after the Richmond hearing, some of the 46 arrested saints were allowed to leave. However, the prophet and his group were sent on to Liberty Jail, while Parley P. Pratt and his group remained jailed in Richmond. The question might be asked, where is that silver-lined cloud that we've been waiting for. Here in front of me, I have a replicated key. This is what the Liberty Jail key looked like. It's very large and very heavy. <laughs> it could be used as a weapon very easily. But uh, nevertheless, our last portion of the Silver Line Clouds of War, our last uh, podcast that we'll do next time, will be dedicated to Joseph's experiences, of course, in Liberty Jail, and then ultimately um, his freedom as he crosses back over the Mississippi River into Quincy, uh, Illinois. So uh, we're finally bringing 1838 to a close. And so I want to thank you for joining me. I hope you found that, uh, that this was interesting and beneficial to your continued study of the Doctrine and Covenants. With the defeat of the mob at the Battle of Crooked River, the rumor spread like prairie fryer. Prairie fryer. What is a prairie fryer? Sounds like something you cook a, a chicken nugget in. This Come Follow Me video series is a bonus resource to enhance your appreciation of the Prophet Joseph Smith with little-known facts and research about American and church history. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this ComeFollowMe2021.com website. We sure appreciate those who have been contributing on our Patreon page under Latter-day Media. We'll have a link in the show notes, and we would love to invite more to help support this work. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com.